1: anthropologist, development scholar, and political analyst. Vito is an associate professor in the Department of Global Development and Planning, University of Agder, Norway, and he is also a member of the Centre for Digital Transformation. Today's conversation engages us in many big questions that are also characteristic to Vito's approach to work and life. How do we interact with our environment and how do we communicate with algorithms? How to have green transitions that work socially and politically? What are the ways to safeguard analogue life as opposed to a digital one? And the role nation-states should play in ensuring a healthy equilibrium between the two? How does Vito feel about the digital quote-unquote metaverse? And what power and economic relations does this alternative envision? Vito shares about Corona times one of the initiatives he was involved with during the pandemic and the grounded approach social scientists were able to offer. He speaks to individual freedom, self-restriction and care for the other in light of our pandemic contextualized lives and shares insights going forward. Vito offers not only answers but even more questions we should ask ourselves and he invites us to go into the space of inquiry. Join us in this rich conversation. We hope you enjoy it.
0: Hi, friends. We are here today with Vito La Terza, an anthropologist and a chameleon. Hey, Vito. Hello. <laughs> Vito, I'm so excited to have you to, to, to share your wonderful story with our listeners Um, um, I came across your wonderful profile in the world of anthropology via, um, a dear friend of mine that you actually supervised her, I think her, her master or her PhD,
2: She's doing a PhD project in Cape Town, Amina Suleimani. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amina, Amina Suleimani. Doing some quite groundbreaking work on artificial intelligence and healthcare in Morocco.
0: Yeah. yeah, she's she's wonderful. And and we actually and we were discussing about David Graeber and both of our fascinations with David Graeber. And 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 I was asking I was asking her, hey Amina. Um, are there any other David Gravers out there in this world that, that, that take a, a similar stance, and similar inspiring stance on how they use anthropology as a tool of effect in the world? Huh? And, um, and they said, yes, I know one. It's Vito. I'm going to introduce you to him. And um, now this was the starting point of, uh, of our wonderful Gap Together. Um, so I'm not going to I'm not gonna speak for longer. I just wanted to ask you then to maybe introduce yourself to me and our audience and tell us a little bit about your journey and, and how do you come to do what you do today?
2: Well, first of all, let me say that David was a good friend, but by far, while I feel honored, I don't think I can uh, parallel, you know, the incredible human being and intellectual he mm. was. And yeah, it's a really sad loss for all of us intellectually, personally, yes. and all yes. that. But thank you for the link. Uh, I can only be honored and, uh, you know, and uh, hope that I can do a very small part of his legacy. Yeah. Uh, but continuing on that note, uh, I call myself an anthropologist and political analyst also because I really want to keep my engaged part clear. I don't just do science communication. I am in my own way a journalist. I produce media. So I truly really try to engage with multiple publics in a way that goes well beyond just the call of academia. On the other end, I am trained as an anthropologist. I did a PhD in anthropology at the University of Cambridge. So I'm very proud to have learned basically the tools of ethnography that really gave me the the ways to engage in the world and make uh, some kind of political or social impact if I can or if I can try to do. So that's a bit of what I do uh, uh, at the moment. I'm based at the University of Agder. It's a small university in Southern Norway. I've been here already for, it's my fourth academic year that I just started. And I work in the Department of Global Development and Planning, so very much with development studies people who study Global South, also with some anthropologists and sociologists Mm -hmm. and geographers who focus more on the Nordic. So we got this kind of two souls of the department. And I'm also the chair of the digitalization and sustainability area at the Center for Digital Transformation, where we do very interdisciplinary social science research on humans and technology and the social impact of technologies. working a lot with information systems, political scientists and many other disciplines.
0: Wow, your field of interest and work is quite impressive and broad, um, Vito. And 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 I wonder, is there is there some form of unifying core question or interest area that 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 connects what you do? Um, and and if there is one, how did it come to be for you? Was it always like this? Is it something that you stumbled upon or just emerged naturally from the way you look at the world? I think at
2: heart, I remain an existentialist. So since mm-hmm. I was a kid, I was always a bit of an outsider. I always asked, what's happening here? Is this really me? Is this the environment? Is where, where what, what are these people doing? Who are these people? You know, these moments mm-hmm. of estrangement that kind of created this sense of really start wondering about what what does it mean to be in the world? You know, what what is the essence of being? From these questions, because I was always quite exuberant, quite social, I became very engaged. I didn't want to do this kind of armchair philosophy, but I wanted to do things. I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to run for student rep in high school and just getting engaged, get my hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I came to anthropology. In many ways, I discovered later that I became an anthropologist at 17, in the sense that we mean anthropology in a more classical term. I moved to Eswatini from southern Italy, where I grew up. I come from the Apulia region in the southeast of Italy. And I moved to a Swatini, it was called then Swaziland, the small Southern African kingdom line blocked between South Africa and Mozambique. And I moved there with an international scholarship on my own, I left my family. So I had the first experience of having to leave something familiar that I kind of took for granted into a new unfamiliar place that I knew almost nothing about. I almost chose it because it was going to be far away in my mind from what I knew. But very much like anthropologists, within a couple of years, it grew so much on me that it became a new home. I became familiar again in this estranged and mixed world. So one movie that I really love, that I think uh, signifies this anthropological journey, is by Tarkovsky. It's uh, Nostalgia. Is the moment in the final scene where his Russian background and his Tuscan living become one and the same mm-hmm. thing. And that's how I see anthropology. And that's the kind of questions I ask. How do we interact with the environment? What kind of beings are we in the environment, and what are these other things or organisms that are there? Mm-hmm. And I ask this in very low tech environment. And now lately, I'm really curious about digitalization. What's happening mm-hmm. on social media? What's happening when me and you record this, uh, you know, virtually? What's happened when I do digital learning in my master's program that I teach in? So these are the questions that I'm asking now. And perhaps there are two streams to this. One is uh, very much about power and economic power. And that's, I learned a lot from people like David and economic anthropologists in general. And it's the question of who controls what, who has the resources, material, social, symbolic, to run things, who wins, who loses. The other mm-hmm. question, perhaps more coming from Gregory Bateson and cybernetics is communication, but communication at a deeper level. How do we communicate with all these systems, with these human things, non-human things, spirits, technologies, and how does this communication work in broader terms?
0: Mm-hmm. And how do do these interests uh, that you have uh, veto land in concrete projects? Can you can you tell me something about that? What what projects are you busy with right now in this uh, in this field? I would
2: say my more kind of passion project, the one that I'm, I'm more of a lone uh, anthropologist slash philosopher. <laughs> it's really political communication. Uh, we have this case that probably everybody has heard something about it about Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. but because there's so much data that emerged from the kind of public interest committees and inquiries. We have two whistleblowers book from the rogue this rogue firm that did. We still don't know what uh, you know as a campaigners for Trump and starting mm-hmm. to use Facebook and micro targeting in all kinds of ways uh, to shift voters. Uh, I take it as a case of digitalization to really trying to make a theory about how humans and AIs and algorithms, in this case specifically, how social media algorithms interact. So that's a practical case while I take an empirical case with a very big question. And uh, on the political economy side, I'm very interested in, I've always studied classic topics of development and underdevelopment. So going back to 1960s uh, dependency theory, why is it that the global South has such a raw deal? And, of course, these questions are still very actual. So when we're talking about energy transitions, we talk about battery development, when we talk about the whole material infrastructure that runs this conversation, so the really material parts of these human-environment relations, I want to know more about who wins and who loses and what can we do to redistribute wealth, to redistribute benefits, to have a green transition that really works for everybody socially and politically. So these are two examples of the of uh, what I'm working on, uh, uh, how big questions can become very empirical and very applied. I'm a very applied scholar, but with very big questions driving my applied interest.
0: Yeah. And do you think, maybe it's a stupid question, but uh, I'm sorry for that. Um, But but do you think that technology can play a role in in destabilizing these these rigid systems of power?
2: I, I must say, I. I always had a very ambivalent relationship with technology. And of course, as an anthropologist who prides himself in being in the system, I cannot hide too much. You know, I have to be careful Mm. about how I put it. But the bottom line is that I was one of these child pioneers in my hometown would have been the first with a computer and a connection. That's because my parents, especially my father, he was a techno-utopian, he came from this uh, liberal Mm -hmm. movement who thought that uh, technology was going to free us all and the biggest revolution on earth. So I came from a very enthusiastic perspective. I was Mm -hmm. the the child, the 10-year-old child teaching my dad how to become, entering the technological era, right? And so it really grew on me. A a lot of this work I'm doing is really out ethnographic. I might not declare myself in that, but I always have an experience in quite early on in my life where I really shaped my perceptions, Mm -hmm. my politics. So I started with a more enthusiastic side. And definitely when we've seen the Arab Spring and, you know, fast forward in the kind of, Uh, era of social media and politics, I saw the potential for empowerment, liberations. But I think with years, as I was studying and tinkering more, as I was getting engaged as an activist, talking to people in the activist world, especially with progressive movements, studying cases on the other side of the spectrum, like Cambridge Analytica, I started realizing that there was a lot of conditioning, a Mm -hmm. lot of Designs in this technology in the very structure of the internet, because we tend to study things as new. But when we look at the cybernetic blueprints of the early ARPANET, you know, 60s and 70s, a lot of the principles that Zuckerberg, uh, Elon mm-hmm. Musk, and others talk about, they were already there. So social media are not new in that sense. They were already taught out decades ago. There, I'm starting to become more and more wary of the negative effects or the disempowering effects. So, how this technology can be used to manipulate people without their awareness. Think about Shoshana Zuboff, uh, mm-hmm. Magisterial, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, you know, especially on Facebook and Google. So at the moment, I'm in between. I don't want mm-hmm. to end up uh, with the kind of Zerzam primitivism and say, oh, we can uh, stop the technological revolution completely. Also, because I think this kind of oppositional movements become very easily cults. They basically don't achieve what they claim because they're too declared, they're too much in the open. So the power of the technological uh, companies is too much. They know how to mm-hmm. deal with that. But we need to be very smart now. So the concept that I'm developing more theoretically, it's analog humanity an analog life. And by analog, I mean life before digitalization, not physical life. When I'm around as a physical person, Looking at my smartphone, you know, engaging the social movements where I'm in a protest and everything is happening on Twitter at the same time. That is still highly digitized life. It's physical, but it's digitalization. We're still digital humans. Analog life, perhaps it becomes more and more of a romantic idea, but I was grown in the era before the internet, right? I grew up for some years. Is that life that is still not colonized by digitalization? those thoughts that are still not influenced by my digital mediations uh, those physical activities that still see the smartphone out of it is just not there. Mm-hmm. So I think very much the ecological principle that we learn from ecological anthropology and that we learned for so long, very much as we used to make arguments about cultural and biological diversity is the same argument today. if we don't foster and preserve analog forms of life, those forms of life will be extinct. So there's a part of us, there's a part of humanity that we will lose perhaps forever or for a very, very long time, perhaps until the next catastrophe that brings technology on a ground zero. So we need, no matter how much digitalization goes ahead without being too fundamentalist about it, without being too militant about it, we need to create zones that are de from digitalization, they are delinked from algorithms. They are delinked from artificial intelligence. More and more, I'm working on this concept. I don't quite know what it means, but I know we need to do it.
0: What will these zones protect, uh, Vito? This or zone... safeguards? What 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 is it inside those zones that that needs to sit inside the zone? Otherwise, it's lost.
2: It's a part of ourselves that came before the mediation with this level of digitalization that we're experiencing now.
0: Mm. Give me some examples.
2: The kind of conviviality that doesn't see you distracted by your smartphone, Mm -hmm. the kind of feeling of being there in the moment where you and your student, if you're a teacher, let's say, or a lecturer, really are looking in each other's faces and are thinking and doing those grand thinking about a problem without thinking uh, about the next lecture or whether the uh, lecture recording will go in the learning management system. Or those moments when we are free also from the bureaucratization that this technological life is bringing, to go back to some of David Graber's topics. The the digitalization is also structuring structuring us as beings. Is basically putting us deadlines. We're becoming more and more of an outlook calendar. So we need to fight against that. We need to keep those forms of conviviality when we used to just have coffee and not worry about when the next meeting was, not looking at the next outlook invite. If we don't do that, more and more, we still do those things. I don't want to be too pessimistic. It's not that we don't have coffees and we don't talk to each other, but I'm seeing it in the classroom. I'm seeing it with my colleagues. I'm seeing it with my family and with my friends. We are becoming so regimented this kind of technological mediations are running more and more our lives without even us realizing it because they are very efficient. So they might be quite dangerous, but they're dangerous because they work well. It's dangerous because in the middle of a pandemic emergency, we went completely online and students are now telling us it works so well. That is the danger. Not when technology fails, but when it works so perfectly that we can't realize it's there anymore.
0: Yeah, it re- it reminds me of uh, Ingold um, and and his theories on dwelling and and the phenomenology of of how you are in the world as part of the world. Um, and I think there's something very beautiful if 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 you look at it from a biological perspective, how we are part of the environment, how we sense in the environment, how the environment shapes us. It's almost this 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 osmosis that happens. Um, that it, it it has for me such a level of complexity that technology is just so far away it just replicates it in into such a crude manner but if if you sit in that crude reality for too long then it becomes your reality and then you lose something very precious um, that is much more complex and you substitute it for something that is just never as good you know
2: Absolutely. And that's another theory that, that, I, that, I, that I really think is quite uh, influential and comes all the way from the 1960s mm. and 1970s first, first kind of postmodernists like Guy Debord. Mm. And then again, mm. activist philosophers, not just armchairs. Uh, it is the theory of the spectacle, right? So what the board, Guy Bord, was really reflecting on how the mass media society, the screen of the cinema and the TV was fundamentally changing that human environment relation our dwelling and building in the environment, right? To use Engolian terms. So he, his work then becomes even more visionary now. It's almost like that vision actually realized now. Because even when I remember in the 80s, uh, I was just a child and my mother was quite, Keen that we shouldn't have TV. So we were the only Italian family that we knew without TV, because you know she had read these things about bad TV. And she was right, right? So she was working on similar lines. She was reading the more fringe literature that told her, hey, this TV, you know, is making children just passive. You just put them, put them on. The amount of damage that a passive mean, like on as a TV, does compared to the kind of damage that we're seeing now coming out from the Facebook files discussion in America to kids being driven to suicide because of this very active. So the spectacle that the board was talking about was very passive, we were passive receptacles. And we got scared that we were going to become some kind of uh, pacified zombies. But actually, our social media made us active beings in the digital Mm -hmm. world became far more addictive, far more colonizing our human faculties than a TV where you just switch off and you just hear, and the TV is quite limited, and you're going to get some boring channel, and you're going to get some state channel. It's was so much more controlled, even the amount of hate speech you can find, or uh, you know, inappropriate content, or uh, radicalizing content. It was still mass media. It was still quite negotiated to some kind of social process that had to do with that intermediation of, if you want, now an old society, the post-World War II deal. So, It's it's exactly understanding those views of how we dwell in the environment exactly because we are not just rational agents controlling the world. It's it's from that view that we can understand then the negative effects Mm -hmm. of this excessive digitalization. And that is the danger of those views. In many ways, they inspire the post-humanist turn. The post-humanist turn is not theoretically incorrect. They understand that the new human, the post-analog human, is the result of the interaction with the environment. So as the tools change, and we're not anymore in a low-tech, more material place, then the humanity changes. But most of them have embraced it uncritically. They've almost done the job of legitimizing it, saying, this is good, this is great. this. It became another utopia, right? We now have to walk back and take those inside to also show that there are deep negative effects. And then warning and and showing that we need to manage these things. And that's where the politics come in. We need regulation we regulate everything. Why wouldn't we regulate Facebook? Why wouldn't we regulate ads on social media? So again, it's not about being militant and fundamentalist against technology. It's about showing that there are some old school principle of the pre-digital world that we don't want to let go. There were good social democratic human principles that make societies run in a certain way. We still want to stick to that in a technological world.
0: Yeah. And And Vito, maybe it's also a moot question to ask because you've made your position quite clear, but I'm curious about your views of, on the uh, uh, announcements around metaverses from, from Zuckerberg, but also from Microsoft. Like, what, what, What's your view on, on, on that?
2: Metaverse is the future of social media. If we want to take it from this more critical perspective, is the next dystopia. Mm-hmm. So now imagine having, I have wear glasses. So I might have <laughs> a small chip on the side of yeah. my, let's say, right eye or left eye. That's it, probably that's the only evident device that you could even see, perhaps after a while I forget. I'm walking around, a physical environment, not a virtual reality, not a, and my physical environment is mediated by thousands and millions of algorithms that determine the color of the sky, whether I see the sky green or blue or dark blue, determine some uh, virtual beings, which after a few minutes or at all, I might not distinguish anymore whether they're real or not. So they're completely merged with the physical environment. And now this media company, these tech companies have data far more granulated, far more refined than what they have now. They will have my pulse, my med- my biological data. They'll have my, my facial features. They might get my muscular Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, make up. So the refinement or the micro-targeting that we see now on Facebook, that's old stuff. It's dead. It's nothing. It's uh, amateur. Mm -hmm. So imagine this tool in the wrong hands and in the current Wild West. No regulation, no control, no accountability, no scrutiny. That's the metaverse.
0: Yeah. What would be a more that's a favorable alternative that, that you would think of?
2: The basic point is that as human societies, we decided that we need social contra- contracts to, to mm-hmm. decide what's good or bad. Let's not on the discussion. Let's not get now what's good or bad. That changes across societies. We can agree, disagree. But we kind of agree. There's no human society, let's put it like that, that doesn't have such a social contract. And then we can agree, disagree. It might be bad, good, but there's a mm-hmm. better system. Now, why have we now decided, almost block, that there is one incredibly influential part of human life called digital technology that shouldn't be under such principles at all? When did we even make such decision? So if you trial a new drug, you need to do tests. <laughs> and we see <laughs> with the vaccines, the whole controversy, how many tests you do or not? So, how can we have VR headsets that we now know from data can even cause some mental illness and dissociation without regulation? Why is it then now anything that is technological? When I'm in when we are in the university, I'm in a system in Norway that has got very strong levels of democracy, not in abstract. We have a real everyday democracy made of committee meetings, made of student reps that talk to student reps at the higher level, and then they deal nationally. And that, so almost everything. Through this system goes through some level of consensus or so highly democratic negotiation with workers, students, managers, administrators, the whole system. Most technological decisions are taken by a few people by that, and nobody contests them. We cannot just even just make the usual conspiracy theory, oh, there is a cabal out there. We humans are delegating this class of technology developers and business procurements and governments who just decided that by default, we should just digitalize more, no matter what, no matter how. So what I'm saying is that is the basic principles that matters here. Hmm. I, I'm not so concerned about the content of the metaverse or not. Those principles have to apply to every single technological development, just as they apply in everything else in social and political life.
0: Yeah, how, how, how do we kind of move forward from here? Because you have this... Uh... A few companies huh? um, that that control that have an immense amount of power on on the way we engage with technology. Uh, on the other side, governments are are still kind of struggling to understand what that that means and and how can they play a role in that. Like w- what would you say from your perspective should be um, I don't know, a way forward and out of this uh, situation?
2: I think the current discussions in the US Congress, is actually very promising. There's been a change on the policymaking side. When we had the Cambridge Analytica scandal, basically the politicians understood very little about what was going on. Yeah. So we had these whistleblowers who were trying to convince them that there's something quite worrying was going on. The politicians, beyond now the lobbies and all that, of course we have power, I'm not now trying to take that out. but Quite sincerely, I think many of them couldn't understand. They came from another generation. They didn't understand the technology. So many just felt, okay, this is some conspiracy theory. Come on, this is too much. It, it can, cannot be true almost, right? That was the reaction even from many activists. And nah, that is is extremized. And the latest discussion actually giving quite very detailed. So finally, somebody like Brave as Francis Hogan is able to explain in quite simple terms. So she's not becoming a, how the algorithms work that if you have what we call engagement-based rankings, so that everything is about whether you like it or not. And so this addictive behavior where Facebook gives you more of what you want, regardless of how positive or good or bad it is for you, which is like any other addiction. We can be addicted mm-hmm. to food or certain substances and all that. It's the same thing. Feeds you your drives, whatever you just get enjoyment from. On a psychoanalytical level, whatever really gets you on, gives you that thrill, right? Mm-hmm. She- One simple change in the social media design, where you do a chronological ranking for your wall so that the things that you look at don't come ranked by this, what Vito likes the most, regardless of the ethical effects on him or or physical and psychological effects, already breaks half of the power of that. So there are basic designs when you were asking, Mm -hmm. beyond the big discussion here about principle politics. There are very basic technological improvements that we can make where well, we don't need to switch off the internet, but we can make social media more ethical and more democratic
0: yeah. yeah vito i have I have a question for you, which is quite quite in 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 the connect in in the continuation of our conversation around metaverses and and those those things that you lose when you you when when you give yourself to one. Um, I'm now following this course with Bio Akumolafe. I, do, I don't know if you know Bio Akumolafe, but he's a, he's a philosopher and an intellectual in, in um, post-humanism. And, and what, what strikes me in the course that I'm leading with him is that he invites us, the participants, when we're around 500 or 600 people now in that course, into spaces of of making and unmaking rituals with each other. And, and spaces of sensing that 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 uh things sensing into what is possible uh without necessarily uh being able to cognitively rationalize what it is that we're sensing so tapping into other forms of of sensories and i've realized in in this invitation with this course um how difficult it is for myself to use other ways of sensing um i and i've realized that with my Life, kind of like uh, with the way I engage with the world via these mediated technologies, I have kind of desensitized myself to sitting with inquiries. So I'm so used to being given or to say yes or no to things that are given to me that I've started to lose my way into the space of inquiry into the senses. So there, there's something in this, in this, in this defamiliarization with the process of sensing yourself in your environment. That I did not even realize I've lost it in in the engaging in the social technologies and uh, reflecting back on the way you've expressed uh, why, why the meta why you need to say yes to other things than the mediated technological space. Now I kind of realize why, at least for myself. So there's no question here, but but I wonder if if uh, or maybe there is one. I wonder how do you see this this kind of processes of, of making rituals, of making space, of, of sensing, of inquiry, rather than saying yes or no to something that is given by somebody else.
2: This is quite an open question at the moment in human technology relations, you know, and that's a lot of the debates we are having. Can we really have a better internet? Can we really have a better virtual reality? Or do we just have to go for the, you know, simplified, uh, almost uh, brutally blunt uh, Facebook, yes, no, uh, five emoticons, you know, five range of emotions and all that, right? Right. Um, I think there's two things here. Before we get to the rituals, I think you, your uh, 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 representation of what you're going through and what you're thinking about hints at something very important. And it's again the fact that the way in which these technology designs work are not to actually represent physical reality, or what I said before, analog reality, i.e. reality before the computer, before mm-hmm. digitalization, they create entirely new mediations. And that's mm-hmm. also the main argument of post-humanism. You mm-hmm. don't just have a representation. What I'm seeing now, as I look at you in our kind of Zoom uh, recording, it's not your real face represented. It's your Mm. virtual self. It's something that exists only here between me and you in this Mm. specific space. And same if you talk about the audio, the way now our listeners will listen to us on the podcast. There's something about the mediation that is quite specific and creates certain kinds of realities. So the challenge... When people talk about the metaverse, and that's what also what I was told by some of these technology, uh, you know, developers in uh, virtual reality and augmented realities on the business side, is they want us to fill the worlds. They cannot do the worlds for us. So the new planning. It's not the kind of Le Corbusier modernistic planning where the vision is already made. You already know where you want people to be and then you build this grand infrastructure to create your modernist vision. Now, you need to plan so that you and I almost seamlessly create our own world without even realizing that the technology developer is there at all or that the technology is there at all. And that's the new challenge for virtual reality. That's where the bottlenecks are not so much in the technology per se, but the fact that if they don't have a mass experiments with millions of people, all of a sudden started dreaming, inventing, playing with their avatars, and now the colors of the room look, they cannot achieve that. So we have to create the worlds so that we also get used to them. We like them. If you want in negative terms, we become Mm -hmm. more addicted. And of course they make the money, but okay, that's capitalism. So that is the, the business plan. The question is then, Can we do something better than that? I think on the political economy side, of course Mm -hmm. we can. This could have been a far more democratic process with companies Mm -hmm. that are much more socialized, the state could be much more involved, also community groups at a more decentralized level. There is no doubt that as economic model, we can do better than capitalism in the current uh, configuration. But what I'm more critical with people who tell me about the empowering side of technologies can we do better on that infrastructural sensorial level? Mm. I must say, I don't have an answer. I think we need to think about it. And I think those experiments that you were making in your digital course are, you know, the the, the way to go. I'm not sure that we can find worlds that are really that full, so rich as our analog worlds have been. So I don't want to sound too romantic or too nostalgic or some, uh, you know, past, but so far, we know that we have not achieved that. I mean, we know after the pandemic, perhaps one good side effect or that accelerated digitalization and mass experiment that became the pandemic for the tech companies is that people are so desperate to go back to the pre-pandemic analog self, so desperate for physical meetings, for physical coffees, for and I think it's a good sign. You know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're having at least... it it became so much that being too utopian or optimistic about technology wasn't really so much an option. It's it's quite normal. Many people are doing that not because they're criticizing Facebook, but because they're realizing, that's where we started the conversation uh, in this uh, uh, podcast, they're realizing that they might be losing something, something quite important. Perhaps we can't articulate it yet, but we're starting to feel it on a very, very phenomenological level.
0: Yeah and and I think like like what struck me in this course is that just to give you an example we were in a breakout room and we were supposed to to offer like uh inquiries into a quite a quite a deep questions and and one of the participants got very frustrated with with his inability to articulate um and then he said I cannot articulate here in the same way as I would articulate if we were sitting around a campfire with the five of us there's something in this mediated interaction that blocks my articulation. So I have to go outside. So then he went outside. He was sitting on a chair and he saw a a rabbit. um, And then he kind of sat in stillness for three minutes. And then somehow that articulation came to him. And he said, there's something subtle about the way... about the way in which the natural world engages us into a process of sense-making. That it's so subtle, but it, it draws out of us what needs to emerge in the response to a query. That in the mitigated digital space, you don't have the same subtle sensing and interdependence and fluidity. There's almost like you have this prescribed system that only offers you very simplified ways of navigation that are very, no, they're they're just not, attuned enough to the way us as human beings engage with the world with the, now. Sorry, I'm not uh, articulating it well uh, right now myself, but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, resonating with your answer. That's what I wanted to say.
2: I mean, what uh, um, philosophers of technology and anthropologists <laughs> of technology would say there are two processes that are going on. One is the reduction of your sensorial spectrum. So mm-hmm. we tend and we end up using less senses. So in Mm -hmm. this case, for instance, our tactile senses are almost gone in terms of Mm -hmm. how we are interacting Mm -hmm. now in this non-physical environment. Uh, So it's sight, uh, if it's video, if it's only audio, it's the voice. So we Mm -hmm. lose some senses. But then, as uh, some of the literature says, the senses get amplified. So there's a double process. You then have to use only these two senses. So when I'm doing my digital teaching, the written words on those announcements that people get in the emails and more and more in the apps, even though I try to discourage them, but it's still mm-hmm. the app because of course it's easy. Of course they have it everywhere they go. I have to measure every single word because if mm-hmm. something goes wrong in the communication, I start getting a wave of 20 emails and anxiety here. And then because all of that in a physical classroom, in an analog classroom will be sorted out just by with a minute said, oh, okay, I see your faces. No, I didn't mean that. I meant that. And then that's it. When you're in the online world, just the little misunderstanding can amplify in a whole um, other problem. So what my experience is also studying these activist networks when when there were protests and we were both physical and online at the same time, is not the sense of connection. Mm. The connection we're having here as we are talking is very real. It's not less than, mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, uh, to use a bit of a complicated word in an ontological sense. It's very real. It exists. Mm-hmm. But it's a fundamentally different connection. And I think from what I've seen in the last few years and a bit of what I've done as more academic work, it tends to favor very strong emotions. So to disagree, you have to disagree mm-hmm. loudly. To agree, you have to agree loudly. You laugh loudly. So it is... Uh, the model that they are using, and they're using in artificial intelligence now, but they've been using for long, is what they call neural networks, right? Mm-hmm. They're still trying to copy in some way, but in a very simplified way, the structure of the mind. Of course, they take the brain, so a much more scientific view. And I mean, we have all the criticism that they should have for that. But it's not that they don't have complexity in these networks. It's not that, as uh, Teresa Brennan uh, wonderfully shows a bit in the pre-social media world, we transmit affects online, Probably even more so than we would want. Yeah, it's just that the control of these efforts and the way in which these efforts mm-hmm. go viral, viral and intensify, it, yeah. it's quite scary. I mean, we've seen it with the protests. You could be for hours, you would leave a physical location, then continue, and and there was some tensions going on. You know, some sense. Mm-hmm. The, the activists were depressed about how they felt surveilled about something. The negative mood continued on Twitter. Until then, something really bad happened just a few hours later and you didn't know who did what. But there was an act of violence. And was it uh, with this paranoia? Was it a third force? Was it an infiltration from the the police? The point is that that continuum, we were all in the same space. We were absolutely affecting each other. We were feeling sick in the stomach as people were sharing their Mm. negative views. There was nothing unreal or or less than about that. It was just a very different reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Vito, I want to guide us a little bit. I know we don't have much more time left together, and I I wanted to really um, spend some time also exploring another fascinating project of yours, which is Corona Times. Um, So for for those of our listeners that that do not know, um, you are the chief editor of Corona Times, a blog that is written and curated by scholars from across the world in which humanities and social sciences are in a dialogue with public health. Uh, knowledge. Um and from what I could understand, the purpose of the blog was to offer ethical expert commentary covering aspects of this current situation of Covid uh, that often went unnoticed. so um, i'm I'm very curious, um how has this blog evolved um from the moment that you started it until now? and and yeah, how how have you seen it contributing to um to this situation?
2: Well, let's say perhaps that after our relatively critical talk about technologies, <laughs> that's perhaps one, one good, one good <laughs> uh, positive effects of digitalization. Actually, I think we, we did uh, a pretty good ethical products uh, also thanks to digitalization. We're all stuck at home from mm. across the world, several countries, both the editors, the writers, everything. You know, basically the whole production machine was done without one physical meeting. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was a very intense moment. The the blog basically peaked, and we peaked also in the cyberspace and in the people's imaginary in the first wave of the pandemic, first wave in a Eurocentric, Africa-centric way, the wave after China. So uh, yeah. after uh, the, the virus then became accepted that arrived in uh, Europe, uh, then soon after Africa and the rest of the world. Uh, so around March, we started, I think, at the end of March last mm-hmm. year, 2020. Um, uh, the way I tell, tell it to friends, it was my way to keep sane. I mean, fundamentally, and, and, and in that way, it was a very anthropological project. I had to be in the eye of the storm in some way just to cope with the uh, enormous level of anxiety that we were all experiencing. Of mm-hmm. course, as an Italian, being a privileged European subject and even having studied the catastrophes and really dire situations mm-hmm. with HIV AIDS pandemic and having family down in Southern Africa, still as a privileged subject, I still didn't feel down to my bones, in my guts, what a real crisis, what real tragedy Mm. uh, was. So looking at just those uh, images from Lombardy and the stories of these coffins going without names was incredibly traumatic. So... My drive was there, came together with my colleagues. We had a very strong Pan-African base because the University of Cape Town, uh, the uh, UMA, the Institute for Humanities in Mm. Africa, directed by my very good friend, Divine Fu, was really our sponsor. And Divine is also a great editor and joined the team, you know, full on. So they gave us all the support uh, that we needed and a lot of also visibility because they they were already a brand. We put together this team. There were, were about six, seven of us. And we just worked on saying, okay, what can we do as social scientists? What do we do as a humanities mm. scholar, social scientist? What do we do now? And and also, what do we really do? We're just stuck at home in front of a screen. Uh, mm. We're on the all quite privileged subjects. We were not the people on the front lines. We could close mm. our universities on the all a list in our links. We are not working class people having to you know keep everything open even in the middle of, of corona. So we got really into epidemiology. We got really into the topic mm. of the day, trying to understand mm. what is this corona? You know, many of us didn't have an idea of, of even virology or what it was up to then. So I think what we did, uh, we did a pretty good job at creating an antidote to everything else that was happening at the same time, which was conspiracy theory, uh, all kinds of interest trying to feed into people's anxieties and you know escalating them. We offered a sober, uh, uh, grounded approach to say, we know that we don't know and yet we are sure that certain things that need to be done, they need to be done. We cannot have this kind of absurd conversation a bit like social critical social scientists are used. We made it as a requirement, Mm -hmm. no matter how critical, or how abstract your argument had to be you had to come up with some policy recommendation. You had to locate yourself. You could not basically run away from your public responsibility. As a social scientist, you take risk, you might even be wrong, but you need to tell us what are the practical implications of your analysis. That was really our uh, catch on that. So we moved away from the critical theory that came up in a few weeks while people were dying and people were telling us how complex the philosophy ran away from some distorted view of the idea that there were just states trying to lock everybody down, you know, in the name of some um, semi bogus philosophical theory, we said, no, we need to do grounded work. That's the best that anthropology, grounded humanities Mm -hmm. and social scientists can offer. We know something about people. We know something about how people interact in certain contexts. So we can contribute. But I think even after several months of the journey, we really discovered how humble we should be a scientist and also why the, the best, I think, some of the best things that we can contribute from our position, also compared to virologists or to mm-hmm. the clinical sciences mm-hmm. and the heart sciences, is that humility. M- never go there with the arrogance that you know and that you are sure. Corona showed us that nobody was sure. Many decisions were wrong, even when done in in good faith. Many of the data turned out to be something else after. So we were warning towards that caution, that when you are in a tragedy of that kind, when things are happening so fast, actually being sober and grounded and accepted that you don't know many things, it's one of the best things you can do.
0: Yeah. And, and I, um, this is this is one of the questions that I was really wanting to ask you when we scheduled this. But looking into the Corona blog and and reading some of the articles that you guys were posting there, um, individual freedom, self restriction, and care for the other—you know—these notions in the pandemic day they, they really have different emphasis in in different parts of the world. If for me personally, I moved to the Netherlands from New Zealand. Um, and I've watched myself as to do these two different countries have taken very different approach on how they they navigated these complexities of freedom, restriction and um, and and care for the other. What are some of your observations from from this comparative south north axis or, or do you have something to offer on this kind of um, very, very complex uh, topic?
2: I, I think what emerged quite clearly, uh, I think, in, in our uh, uh, quite... quite, uh, We learned a lot through reading from mm-hmm. very different scholars in very different parts of the world. Of course, our strongest focus was Africa and Europe because those were the relationship, mm-hmm. but we got some very good blogs in on Latin America. There was something on North America, some parts of Asia as well. But I think in general, we, we realized quite quickly the obsession with freedom that, mm-hmm. that Eurocentric knowledge and the Western world in general had this was, became primarily a Western obsession, you know, almost to the point of uh, neurosis, if not psychosis, if we want to use these categories more in a social sense uh, than, than in, a, in a too strictly clinical sense. Um, the idea that individual freedom should be boundless or should be the only or the primary goal of everything in life, I think under this Corona times has come under threat. Many really don't want to give it up, which has also shown what kind of divisive mechanism for politics it is across the political spectrum. Mm. But what we realized quite quickly that this was an obsession that many Western countries had and others didn't. And when it came to approaches, for instance, to mask mandate in most African countries, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 East Asia even more so, the idea that you do your bit for the collectivity and there is nothing totalitarian about the principle. Regardless, it can be carried out in an authoritarian way. But the principle is not by itself authoritarian or totalitarian. It's not against democracy. But actually, it's the lymph of living together. That there is a balance between mm-hmm. individual rights, which are sacrosanct and should be there, and collective rights. There we clearly showed how. The, the 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 countries that struggle the most and that damage the most, not only themselves, but sadly with the privilege, damage so many other countries. Were really the rich Western countries that we showed ourselves to be really really poor in uh, uh, dealing with a reality that puts collective rights uh, at the center, that thinks about the collectivity, that thinks about the safety of the world as a whole, of or a nation as a group. Uh, or a collectivity as a group. There we're really, really struggling and we continue to see that with the Novak's and No Green Pass um, protest. Uh, uh. and of course again the, the, there's very strong uh, economic interest. There is a part of big business that doesn't want any regulation, so it is convenient for those parts of big business, it's not all big business but certain considerable parts to tacitly or not support those interests. Because when you yeah. say that it's totalitarian to put a vaccine mandate, you're basically saying there should be no regulations. that You know, there should be no curbs to economic activity even when it can kill people, you know, as in the Corona case became a very uh, clear case. So I, I think there's multiple levels here. There's an ideological symbolic level, but there's also a very strong economic agenda sadly that uh, emerges from these activities.
0: Yeah, before the pandemic, like I think, the machine of governing and the act of governance is, is not necessarily, at least in the Western world, something that we as normal people are busy about reflecting, right? What does it mean to govern? What does it mean to be part of a collective? What does it mean? So, so somehow COVID has has put this under the spotlight, right? Like, what do we want from our governance? What do we need? Like, other than just the politic uh, farce of rotating something every four years, like, what do we actually want from somebody that leads us? as a community. So still a very proliferous question, but do you have any reflections on the act of governance and what has it shown us as a as a collective?
2: Perhaps one uh, simple lesson that we are learning is mm-hmm. that we need the state. We cannot live without states. So it's, mm-hmm. the future is not going to be just other very small communities or supra-international uh, you know, blocks. So you still need states because for good and for bad and with all the uh, problems that they have, sometimes of efficiency, sometimes of democracy. They are the ones who guarantee welfare. They are the ones who guarantee if they're still in some intact form, they can guarantee food on the table if you have to close down, uh, you know, mm-hmm. value chains or, or because of uh, uh, of disasters like Corona. They are the ones who basically, as they did, put the money in the central bank so that the financial economy doesn't collapse in two days just because nothing could move anymore. So states yeah. have proved much more resilient than global capitalism. I would say, regardless, even though ideologically, global capitalism still wins the day, there was some signs Mm -hmm. in the beginning that that might have shifted, but very rapidly, they got uh, on top of the game. Effectively, the power of states since March 2020 worldwide has hugely increased, but not only the power, the sense from populations, even after being exposed to decades of idea or just, oh markets should be like free, there should be no regulation. There's now, again, an, a, a sense, again, a visceral sense that is not just left or right by many, many people <clears throat> say, oh, okay, I see now why we need this structure. Okay, I see what they're doing. I see why we need them for good and for bad. We need to curb the excesses. We need to make them democratic, we need to make them public accountably. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think we can live without states. The biggest failure, though, that we experienced from there is the failure of global cooperation. That is the, the tragic, mm. you know, that's the tragedy of the vaccine situation now. We have failed to come together to act as a world. We have failed in the solidarity to say that a human being who's vulnerable in Zambia is the same as a human being vulnerable in Norway, mm. Italy, or Holland, or everywhere else. We have failed in that. Sadly, not surprisingly, we know we were already failing. It's just that the corona crisis gave us the proof, the final evidence that even when we're facing this level of catastrophe, we struggle to be solidaristic. But again, never blame human nature. It's a system of decades of ideologies of the individual, I'm the most important thing, free markets, that's the system that created these humans. Let's not blame human nature or come up with some universalistic uh, doom to humanity. We can create a different humanity, very much like the discussion we had about digital versus analog humanity, uh, states and markets mediate humanities. They are mediators of the kind of humanity we can create and we want. We need a humanity that is solidaristic. And now that we're moving again from having to deal with the Corona crisis, that until we accept the principle that everybody should have rights and should be vaccinated around the world. We're not going to sort out the epidemiological crisis, but this goes directly into climate change. That's the failure yeah, of dealing yeah. with the climate crisis. We still continue to think that I can sort out the climate crisis in Norway, in Italy, in Zambia, in China. It's, it's not going to work.
0: I was reading, was it, I think a few days ago, an article that talked about that COVID and now the climate crisis represents um, a failure of imagination. So in and, and the article referenced, I don't know if you've read Ursula Le Guin, she has uh, this little booklet, The Carrier Bag of Fiction, where she talks about how powerful it is to be able to tell ourselves different stories about what is meaningful to us as humans. So she talks about how, you know, out of stories, systems emerge, out of stories, ideologies emerge. So story is the creator for everything. And and we need moral imagination and we need ties and we need different types of stories to be told to inspire us into different worlds that we can construct. Um, I find that, that essay extremely inspiring myself uh, when I think about um, applied anthropology and action and, and, and this kind of, yeah, what, what type of stories are we telling? And they're very meaningful. And um, how can we tell different stories? Instead of these reductionist stories about individualism and, and capitalism and the Western way, you know? I, but, I uh, agree
2: with the failure mm-hmm. of the imagination. And I think that's exactly what happened in the fir- quite rapidly, sadly, after mm-hmm. the first clear signs that the deregulated global financial market system wasn't going to hold. And if it holds, it holds by chance, by luck. It didn't collapse, not because there was a, a particular strength in it. So we saw in the first few weeks of, that, uh, of the pandemic, of being declared a pandemic and of global lockdowns, that basically is not just that the current system of, of free markets is unethical and, and, and creates uh, inequalities, suffering, deaths, but basically it's very fragile, even mm-hmm. according to its own goals. It was not a plan to have supply chain stopped. You know, and we're having still the effects now. So, yeah. in that moment of fragility, that's where I think our imaginations failed. There was yeah. the space, there was a space, there was a serious opening, I would say, even much bigger than when we had the global financial crisis, when we started to have that first shifts, if you want, and the realization of the fragility of the system, not only the inequality, but also our fragilities. There, we had an opportunity as human beings, as collective, as groups, uh, to uh, start imagining a different story start telling mm. ourselves that we could run things differently and i agree uh, you know with what you said i don't know the specific essay by legenda you mentioned I, you know i know of course of her work a bit i'm not a, i'm not a particular uh, knowledgeable of her work but i i understand that argument very well and i think the value of anthropology in an engaged world the value of applied mm. public engaged anthropology is that we go around the world collecting so many different stories. And we have Mm. so many varieties, even within the same communities, we can come up with these sophisticated, elegant varieties, even of what might look like a single story, but it's not. So perhaps we should be at the center of this. We should be the ones, you know, together with artists and and Mm. the storytellers and the people who are living these stories to really show people that there's always multiple stories, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. As uh, Adige reminded us, there is not a single story on anything. And it Mm. is that variety of stories, is that imagination that can get us out of the crisis. And that's why it's also important when we talk about climate, when Mm. we talk about the pandemic, it's also important that we don't get stuck just on one story and we don't just get stuck on this social medification where we just have to shout one slogan. We need to be more subtle. We need to create a reality that we want uh, 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 live to live in, a reality that is elegant, that is artistic, that is poetic, that at the heart of it is diversity, is diversity that make reality beautiful, and we should never lose that.
0: Yeah, thank you, Vito. Now, my last question, uh, because we're sadly at the end of our time together, is, uh, I'm curious, what are some of the questions you would like social scientists to ask more often and and to deal more seriously with. Part of our audience, I think the most of our audience are social scientists. So um, now I really wanted to throw this kind of provocation um, and and hopefully get some inspiration from you on, on this topic. I think
2: we need to go back to old classical questions. I think in some ways, the whole hype about digitalization and what's new and innovation Uh, sometimes makes us forget what makes us human, and we need to go back to the old questions to understand how these old questions apply in today's world, in the technological world, with all these rapid changes on the epidemiological side, on the climate side. One question for me, I said, I started by saying I'm an existentialist, so perhaps I'll wrap it up there, is what is the meaning of life? What are we doing here on this earth? I think to me, that remains the the, the central question. We we should all be asking this, no matter what the answer is and how many millions of answers we might get. If we forget to ask the question, then I think we're leading to a post-humanity that I don't want to be part of. So I I hope any kind of post-human, non-analog, if things go bad on that side, we'll have still that question there, that even when we are uh, perhaps, uh, uh, let's hope not, completely digitalized, uh, even when we were in that pandemic moment, many of us still completely stuck on the screen. But still, then we ask the question, who are we? Who am I? You know, and that, and, and that question remains key. So I really hope that we revive the kind of big question, social sciences, that sadly funding agencies and this all drive for hyper-specialization, it's also uh, uh, taken out of our scope. Um, the, the second question connected to that, if I had to come down a bit, you know, uh, down from the very big question, it's exactly that, not just focusing on these technical processes as technical, we're not just fixing machines. When we de- develop the next green transition, we're not just finding uh, the right uh, mix of components that works. Works for what? <laughs> We really need social scientists and anthropologists and, and, and critical academia to always ask those questions: what's social about it? Why? How do we interact with these technologies? How do we do a green transition that has beneficial outcomes economically, socially, and politically, that decreases inequalities instead of increasing them? So I really hope that this key question about the social remain there. And to close and connect it to that is the question of power and economic power and redistribution. How do we make a more equal world? How do we mm. make sure the human lives as certain fundamental rights, not only on paper, not only in the UN conventions, which are important, they're good, but in practice, so that when the next pandemic happens, we don't have more people being affected and dying of a certain group or a certain class or a certain rate of a certain country. So that question of, of struggling for a more equal world should always be first and foremost for us academic and academic question. It's not just politics. It's not just something for politicians and social movements. We need to provide the tools, the knowledge, so that politicians, social movements and citizens can actually fight for a more equal world.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vito, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.